0: Felicitations, I'm Nate Langson and this text message was sent on the 18th of January, 2015. We're peering inside the kimono of news first with Top of the Pods to discover the top 10 technology stories scrolled across our information geisha affecting you and the UK this week. In at number 10, and written by Matthew Sparks on The Telegraph, the Spectrum ZX is making a comeback of sorts with the launch of a new device called the Vega, which allows you to play 14,000 games created for the iconic computer on a normal television. The Sinclair Spectrum Vega is described as a recreation of the 1980s personal computer, but designers, have been able to condense all electronics from the original machine into a tiny amount of modern hardware. Externally, it looks similar to the ZX, but is much smaller, no surprise there, without a full keyboard and is handheld. It also incorporates Bluetooth, so can be used as a remote games controller for other machines. It's been created by Luton-based company Retro Computers, which Sir Clive Sinclair, the designer of the ZX, is a shareholder in. At number 9, and written by James Temperton on Wired.co.uk, the head of Vodafone in the UK has said that reliability, not speed, is the most important issue for 4G networks. Gerin Hernkamp claimed that high-speed data on mobile only gets you so far, and that most people didn't even know what 4G was. In a thinly veiled slight at rival network EE, Hernkamp also said that the best 4G network for customers wasn't about who's got the most coverage. Vodafone's fledging network currently covers 50% of the UK, with EE claiming over 80%. He continues, It's more about having the strongest signal. We'd love to expand the network faster, but it's about doing it right the first time. I'd rather do it at the pace we're doing it and get it right, rather than go faster and build a thin and flimsy network, he said. Fighting words. At number 8, by Keith Stewart on The Guardian, a useful roundup of the top games from 2014. The best-selling games of 2014 were revealed in the UK and US, and no one's really surprised that brands like Grand Theft Auto V, Call of Duty Advanced Warfare, and FIFA 15 dominated the year in the charts. In the UK, figures provided by the chart track show that FIFA 15 was the biggest seller of the year, The long-running football sim series sold 2.66 million copies in the UK in 2014, according to the Entertainment Retailers Association, with Call of Duty Advanced Warfare coming in at 1.84 million. There are no really big hitters that will come as a surprise in the top 10, which from 1 to 10 are FIFA 15, Call of Duty Advanced Warfare, Grand Theft Auto 5, Destiny Watch Dogs, Minecraft for Xbox, FIFA 14, Far Cry 4, Call of Duty Ghosts, Assassin's Creed Unity, basically sequels and blockbuster rehashes of previous games. In at number 7 by a nameless writer on the BBC, Google is ending sales of its glass eyewear. The company insists it's still committed to launching the smart glasses as a consumer product but will stop producing glass in its present form. Instead, it will focus more on quote, future versions of glass. With work carried out by a different division in Google than before. Now, the Explorer program gave software developers the chance to buy glass for a bargain thousand pounds or thereabouts, and that's going to close. From next week, the search firm will stop taking orders for the product but says it will continue to support companies that are already using glass. At number six by Catherine Xu on TechCrunch, Samsung has hired Lee Don Tai as its new global design team leader. But what's especially noteworthy about Lee's appointment, says TechCrunch, is that he is the former co-president of Tangerine, not The Fruit, but the London design consulting company where Johnny Ive worked for before joining Apple. Again, not The Fruit. Ive is, of course, the senior vice president of design at Apple and joined in 1992 and has since then spearheaded industrial design for almost all of Apple's devices in addition to now overseeing the look of its software. At number five by another nameless person from the BBC's news desk, the UK and the US are to carry out war game cyber attacks on each other as part of a new joint defence against online criminals. The first exercise, a staged attack on the financial sector no less, will take place later this year, Downing Street has confirmed. It's called unprecedented, this arrangement, and is between the two countries announced by Prime Minister David Cameron ahead of talks with US President Barack Obama. In at number four, and written by Kate Kelland on Reuters, Britain's Beagle 2 spacecraft, once dubbed a heroic failure by the nation's astronomer, Royal Martin Rees, was rebranded a great success on Friday for being found on Mars 11 years after going missing. Beagle 2, part of the European Space Agency's Mars Express mission searching for extraterrestrial life, had been due to land on Mars on Christmas Day 2003, but disappeared a few days earlier on December 19th. Until now, nothing had been heard from it. But at a packed news conference at London's Royal Society scientific institution on Friday, space experts said that the tiny Mars lander had been found on the surface of the red planet. Beagle 2 is no longer lost, Said David Parker, chief executive of the UK Space Agency. He said that recent images from the high rise camera on NASA's Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter showed good evidence that the spacecraft landed on Mars on the date it was due, December 25th, 2003, but had only been partially deployed. At number three, by Roland Moore Collier on V3, a teenager has been arrested in Merseyside following a UK and FBI joint operation relating to the attacks on PlayStation and Xbox systems in December 2014. The Southeast Regional Organized Crime Unit revealed that an 18-year-old man was detained on the 16th of January in Southport, near Liverpool, on suspicion of accessing computer material without authorization. Further charges include intent to committing further hacking offenses, threats to kill, and providing false information online to US law enforcement, suggesting that a threat exists which requires the intervention of armed tactical units. It isn't clear whether the arrest is directly related to the Lizard Squad attacks on Christmas Day, which left many Xbox and PlayStation users unable to play games that required access to the company's servers. At number 2 by Ashley Vance on Bloomberg Businessweek, Elon Musk of Tesla Motors, SpaceX, SolarCity and of course the Hyperloop is launching another project. Musk wants to build a second internet in space and one day use it to connect people on Mars to the web. The space internet venture, to which Musk hasn't given a name yet, would be hugely ambitious. Hundreds of satellites would orbit about 750 miles above the Earth, much closer than the traditional communications satellite, in orbit at altitudes around 22,000 miles. The lower satellites would make for a speedier internet service, with less distance for electromagnetic signals to travel. The lag in current satellite systems makes applications like Skype, online gaming, and other cloud-based services pretty tough to use. Musk's service would, in theory, rival fiber-optic cables on land, while also making the internet available to remote and poor regions that don't have access. Musk says, Our focus is on creating a global communication system that would be larger than anything that has been talked about to date. Of course, this is going to be interesting to people working inside Google on their balloon-based Loon project that also aims to provide internet accessibility to remote areas. And taking this week's number one spot at top of the pods this week, Andrew Griffin on The Independent writes that David Cameron could block WhatsApp and Snapchat if he wins the next general election, as part of his plans for new surveillance powers announced in the wake of the shootings in Paris. The Prime Minister said today that he would stop the use of methods of communication that cannot be read by the security services even if they have a warrant. But that could include popular chat and social apps that encrypt their data, such as WhatsApp. Apple's iMessage and FaceTime also encrypts their data and could fall under the ban along with other encrypted chat apps like Telegram. Well, it's time to take off our shirts and get tickled pink as we look at this week's Sense of Rumour. KGI security analysts are back with another report outlining the belief that Apple will launch a stylus as an optional accessory for the company's rumored 13-inch iPad Pro. With the new iPad's larger screen, it will likely prove popular with enterprise and creative users who tend to have more need for a stylus, and the researchers believe that Apple will fill that need with an in-house stylus solution more can be read about this on Mac Rumours and other Apple blogs. And if you've got a sense of rumour of your own burrowing under your skin, Langson at iCloud.com is an email where you can send things to me in text form, or of course, you can send an audio file if you so wish. Joining me now, first guest, well, not really a guest, first co-host, Mr. Ian Morris. Hello, Nate. Hello, my friend. Now we have... We have a... You're about to say it's lovely to be podcasting <laughs> r- with you It again. is. A, a rich history of such things, don't we? We do. Uh, Ian and I, for the uninitiated, um, or for the recently born, uh, we used to... <laughs> Are you expecting a lot of babies to be tuning into your podcast, Nate? I have started this show with the intention of appealing to the broadest range of demographics. That does include the recently <laughs> slithered into existence. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Ian and I go back uh, back to the old CNET days. We did the CNET UK podcast together, um, which was uh, some of the most fun podcasting I think you can have. Yes, was, was was that show? And we've sort of long since, for the last few years, said, well, we really need to podcast again. So it's rather exciting to be starting a regular show um, that we can that we can do together. Yeah, absolutely. I
1: haven't. I haven't sort of apart from to do the Wired um, podcast one. Months. I haven't really stepped foot in a podcast facility for some time, uh, many years actually.
0: Well, here we are in a podcast facility of sorts. <laughs> Absolutely, a virtual one. Albeit virtual, such as the joy of technology, which is, of course, the topic of the podcast. We wanted to pick a topic and really dive into it. And one of the ones that I thought about for this week was something that came up when Ian and I were having uh, fish finger sandwiches, I think, in uh, a... A Mayfair Cafe, having a a bunch, yeah, a couple of days ago, which was to talk about the state of the television industry, both as a product, but also its supporting products, whether that's streaming media, uh, cinema, I guess things like that. Um, Ian, you used to be, well, you sort of, you still are a a sort of television home cinema expert in a sense. Certainly, were. I don't review that stuff quite so much as I used to. um, Although I might,
1: I might get back into it because I do. You have a, a real passion for home cinema
0: yeah well we used to spend um quite a few hours back in uh, the cnet testing lab sort of looking at uh, back then this new thing called blu-ray that uh looked wonderful and the first 1080p tv instead of the, the 720s and you know why yeah. Why pioneers plasmas were just so incredibly good
1: yeah oh man those those were the days
0: yes well you were at ces and yes, I was. I believe you have gone eyeballs on with these <laughs> Quantum Dot devices from yes. Samsung. Um, so do you want to give it a bit of background? What is Quantum well, Dot? Well, yeah. So, so um, Quantum
1: Dot's been around for a while. Um, in fact, notably, uh, Amazon uses Quantum Dots on its uh, Kindle Fire tablets. Sony's had it for a while under a, a brand called Triluminous. Uh, and now um, LG has um, has done the same thing and, and has gone with the name Quantum Dots, uh, which is... Samsung, it, I
0: think, you mean.
1: No, um, Samsung's calling it uh, SUHD, I believe. Uh, oh, I see, yes. Yes, and so it is... Well, okay, so they won't obviously say that they're, they're staying away from the whole Quantum Dot naming thing, um, so they won't actually admit that it is, but we believe <laughs> that it is. Um, and, but LG has gone with the more... Honest naming of, uh, you know, as, as Quantum Dot. Um, now, I, I've spoken to people from Samsung and I've spoken to people from Sony, and, and both of them are sort of like, why are they, why, why has our technology, which has, you know, been around, or particularly in Sony's case, why has our technology, which has been around longer, um, n- not got any of this marketing traction that the Quantum Dot seems to have done? And I said, well, because. Quantum has been used before Amazon did it. You know, people kind of like the name, even though it isn't really quantum anything at all. It kind of has that exciting sound that gives people a brand. Um, And unfortunately, if everyone's naming their thing different things, then you don't get that, do you? Um, So that's... that's that's it in a nutshell. Um, you're going to ask me to explain what it is, aren't you? And I'm going
0: to come unstuck gloriously. Not necessarily. I was actually um, going to go with sort of suggesting why such a thing exists at all. I mean, essentially, from my understanding of uh, of what came out of CES is that this is sort of a way of extending the lifespan of LCD, possibly because it's not possible to produce enough OLED panels like the ones that are being used by Sony uh, in particular and LG and this is kind of a a way of saying well um, you can't either afford the OLED version or we can't make enough to sell them in enough volume to make them cheaper for you so we're going to sort of take the long established technology of LCD and sort of add effectively an additional element to each one of the the liquid crystals themselves to sort of give each of those little pixels a bit more depth a bit more clarity and and then package that as a new product that will kind of become the stopgap between you having an old lcd and the future oleds that don't yet exist that's Absolutely. my current understanding of what this is you've
1: you've nailed it essentially yes OLEDs leds are impossible to produce in volume apparently uh, only lg is managing it um, so you can buy an oled and it probably will be an, an an lg if you're going to do that um but again and they're they're still they're pretty expensive but um but obviously that technology is still unproven um as good as they might look on first glance it's uh, yet to be seen how they'll age and you know what exactly the future holds but i think there's still a general pretty you know excitement about oled and you're right um it's all about giving lcd a bit more contrast um which has always been its weak spot really. Uh, And quantum dots do that.
0: I remember um, you always raved about, um, I think, particularly the Pioneers and the Panasonic plasmas, um, o- over the last few years, and I know that it was a, something of a shame when they stopped producing those because the, the the black levels and the detail that they had they they were more than just a marketing gimmick. I mean, I always thought plasma sounded better, but you only had to look at a plasma TV displaying a Blu-ray, and you were th- there was no there was no doubt in anybody's minds that this was an exciting technology that you wanted in your home. The problem that I see now, just to move things forward a little bit, is that We're sort of in this kind of um, era where 3D, while still technically on sale, has sort of all but been declared a failure. As, of course, we have been saying for many years since it launched since it launched that that people don't really want this and the the applications for which it is really useful and i have to say despite not being a sports fan or a football fan in any uh, at all the only time i've genuinely thought 3d added something was when i watched a football game in 3d mm. because i just found this small amount of depth that it gave to the pitch where the players were and the position of the ball um, and it just really did mean something not obviously enough for me to buy one because i'm not in the least bit interested in watching football generally but it did amaze me that that was one of the things and that is something you do see advertised at least in pubs you know sky sports 3d here and all this sort of thing so i suspect it's not going anywhere i just don't
1: think there's any sort of real excitement about it anymore i think um because it's a, it doesn't cost anything to build that technology into tvs it's just going to be there um and and we won't use it,
0: but that's fine. We won't, but I. But it does require glasses still. It does, and I still haven't yet seen a convincing glasses-free 3D. The only one that's truly mainstream at this point is the 3DS, the Nintendo. Yeah. Um, and even there, while it is technically a mainstream product, I think I think it can be said that the 3DS is very, very successful, probably the most successful 3D product, um, the, uh, you know, consumer product at the moment it's um it, it's going nowhere for TV so we're talking about 4k now and 4k does look
1: great yeah yeah 4k is genuinely exciting I mean it it's a boost and, and resolution something that gives you a very noticeable improvement especially on bigger screens so you know a few years ago and I've, I've, I've talked to Samsung about this um, I, I have, I have semi-regular chats with their uh, UK president, uh, Andy Griffiths. He's a really nice guy and very interesting to talk to. And he he was telling me that, you know, a few years ago, the average size was 37 inch. And, and now they're just shifting phenomenal numbers of 50 and 60 inch screens uh, because people have just realized that even though you think you might not have room for one, actually, you probably do. And there's no reason not to have a big screen, even if you sit close to it. It's still, especially with 4K. You're still getting a really nice picture
0: yeah definitely and you know with the 4k as well it it seems to me to allow greater levels of creativity when it's on the pc side i've at the moment got a a 4k monitor um, that i've been using to test a a very high-end gaming system and that's that's fantastic but the the advantage to creating content in 4k means you can crop into the picture a lot more which gives you much more control over framing and and this sort of stuff which 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 could serve a benefit the the problem is in the uk at the moment 4k TVs are still extremely expensive and b some of the the the, the best easiest and most affordable way to get 4k content ironically is to make it yourself <laughs>
1: yes i mean there, there isn't a lot of 4k content no i mean not not many people are shooting it it's i suppose really 4k is going to be an interesting one because it's not um one of the things about film is it's possible to do a scan of film at 4K and it's probably possible to do a scan of film at 8K, but I think you're going to start to see diminishing returns on it. So really, until we've got, you know, video camera, you know, uh, CMOS sensors that are shooting at 8K, um, I think that we've probably reached the, the sort of limit of what film can deliver in resolution terms. I, I might be wrong about that because... There's always been a bit, you know. People have always said that film is kind of because it's an analog medium, you can probably always get more detail out of it. Um, but you know, I, I'm 4K is genuinely exciting, and no, you know, you can make it on your phone now, and that's pretty impressive, isn't it? Yeah. I, but so, that's, but
0: that's funny that you say that. That to hear film talked about as a as a technology uh, that is close to reaching its peak of usefulness as far as advancing picture quality goes is amazing because film has always been this this gift that keeps on giving you know the only reason that we can have you know the blu-ray versions of films made in 1960 is because film is there and lets us do this but i mean i've got 8k on my list of things to raise as an issue because i've seen an 8k um television it was made by sharp i think i saw it for the first time about three years ago and it was on display at either ces or ether i think and um it was just kind of one of the japanese nhk programs they'd recorded you know steam trains pulling out of a station all the the stock footage that generally at these trade shows burns everybody's retina um you know from their from their uh terrible uh, terrible uh, tests of uh,
1: tvs really because they're very unchallenging
0: material but yeah, and and I was asking one of the demo people at the, at the time, kind of, what's the market for this, and you know, do we really need this? I'm I'm currently writing about why people shouldn't buy 3D and that 4K is probably the next thing in tech, and and they were saying like this is not technology where you know that's going to be in people's homes. It just isn't. Not like this. They were talking about it being for either corporate usage or for outdoor events. And basically, in other words. Uh, content that is being that is bespoke almost to those screens to the places the screens are going to be used so you're not necessarily they're not necessarily building these 8k screens for people to watch films in 8k they're building them so that people or filmmakers or something can say, well, I know that I'm going to screen this in 8K or I know that I'm going to have a, a, a an event at which 8K could be shown. So I'm going to make content specifically for it. And I thought that's a really interesting trend because it's sort of if that pans out to be the case and we just sort of slice off film, it's sort of we're sort of moving into this era where we're saying, OK, well, we're just flat out films done now. And still today, a lot of stuff is being shot on film. A lot of it's on digital and on, you know, Reds and the Epics and things. Um, are, are you know, Steven used.
1: Spielberg, as a rule, won't shoot on um, on digital. He will only shoot on film.
0: But he's been around for a while. And with, all, with the greatest of respects, his skill has traditionally been involving film.
1: Yes, but I do, but I don't think that the, I don't think that the skill of a director is about the medium they shoot on. I mean, obviously there there are elements to that. You know, like for example, Peter Jackson got widely criticised for got opting for high frame rate for The Hobbit, didn't he? Um,
0: yes, but that was only that was probably only dis- a disappointment because it was the wrong type of film to do. If th- that sort of a pr- um, technology used for a documentary could be fantastic. But no, it made everything look like a very, very expensive pantomime on the world's most elaborate set.
1: Yeah, but I mean, I,
0: I think that's just... You know, the problem is that you, we're never going to not feel like, like that
1: we're, because we've grown up with film and that's always going to be true of the people who, who are our age or older or even younger because um, there are plenty of people younger. Uh, but, you know, it's, um, it, I, I, I kind of feel like we're missing out on... And I get quite angry about this because what, film has some real shortcomings and one of them is the frame rate. Um, 24 frames a second is just not enough i mean you're a gamer you know that right yeah and- all my games have to be
0: at 60 frames a second but that said there is there is a um sometimes f- the frame rate of a of film can mask certain elements of reality and and it, it kind of makes things feel a little bit more i don't want to say cinematic because i hate using that word but there is it's sort of like if you shoot a home video on a phone or on a home camera generally speaking the default is 30 frames a second it gives everything that very home video british sitcom type quality if you drop that frame rate down to 24 frames a second and some old video cameras in fact, some of them probably still do um give an option of you know film mode it's basically they just captured at 24 frames a second suddenly your own home video feels more cinematic and theatrical and that can be quite interesting as a creative choice. And by the way, what I wanted to say about the directors, not so much that they can't adapt to digital, it's more that they may have a signature look or a style to their film that they just want to continue making. Sure. Like some directors continued to make in black and white for a long time. Or well, Stanley Kubrick, I think, was the last director to make a film in the 4-3 aspect ratio.
1: Oh, Stanley Kubrick's an interesting one with 4-3. He never, he never wanted his films to be shown on TV. Widescreen, but that was back when we didn't really have a lot of widescreen TVs, and he he, uh, he that carried over a little bit. I remember, I remember just around the time he died, I think there were a lot of um, a lot of his films were, were, were released on DVD, but they were four three, because that was the stipulation of his all of his dealings with the film studios was that anything Holmes cinema related had to be four three. And I think eventually once once he was dead, I think they were able to rescind that and they and they have now put out the the widescreen ones. But his his argument was always that if it unless it was displayed on a widescreen, television, you know, or a, something like a cinema screen, then he wanted it to go back to being the four three which is how he shot them. He shot them to be mat ready. So there's more height. Um and you know that was that was his thing. And I was always very disappointed because um eyes wide Shut, it's a film I always quite enjoyed. Um, it's, a, it's a bit of a strange film, but it's um, it, it's it, it's rescued by the fact that Stanley, Stanley Kubrick is just amazing. Um, and um, and I always wanted to have that in widescreen because it's got some beautiful shots in it that I think really work better in widescreen. You couldn't own
0: it. Just to sort of um, summarize, really, this year I wanted to sort of try and answer a answer a question and and give people something to to take away. I mean, this year is this the year? F- A is this the year three D is officially dead?
1: I think it's been dead for ages, mate. To be totally, I was gonna
0: I was gonna add a caveat to that, which was or was that twenty fourteen, which I'm guessing is the answer. We don't have to answer these sequentially, you know. By all means, I can get to the end of the list. We can come back. It is an open format, my friend. Open format. Uh, But B will 4k uh which currently feels held back by price but also by the lack of distribution um will it get better distribution do you think in the uk and in and in europe um and um i probably had a third one but it slipped my mind so let's just focus on b Will 4K do you think in the UK we're going to get any sort of robust 4K delivery mechanism that will enable 4K to become more mainstream? I
1: do. I think um, – I, I have a feeling um, – it, it's a difficult one to answer. We won't get it on Freeview. Um, not now, probably – to be honest, probably not ever. I don't think Freeview is the, really the right medium for 4K. Um, I have a feeling that sky will launch a product this year with which is 4k for sport. Um, they've done testing already. It's technically possible. It's not particularly difficult on satellite. There's plenty of bandwidth sky hasn't really released an exciting new box for a long time and it's going to want to, it, it will certainly help with customer churn. It will help with getting more people onto the platform as customers. So I have a feeling that sky will be pushing it this year. Um, Netflix, Amazon, Prime, Instant Video, whatever the hell it's called this week, um, all are going to be offering increasing amounts of 4K, and they're all shoot you know Netflix shoots all of its own original series. It does It does two things that I think are really interesting, and I wrote about this uh, in a Forbes column. Um, they write um, they, they shoot in 4K, usually with red cameras, I believe. They also also shoot in a two to one aspect ratio. Which is how they're also shooting the new Jurassic park film uh, so it, the idea of that is it's a, it's a really nice middle point it's the cinemas and it's good for home display it it you don't it, neither is a massive compromise unlike one eighty five to one which isn't great on cinema screens and two point three five to one which isn't great on home sit home TVs because it obviously you get huge black bars on the top and bottom um but I I would respectfully suggest that there might be another technology
0: coming this year that might be more significant. Ooh, this is breaking well it's not breaking news probably but breaking opinion. Well, yeah, absolutely. Cuz cuz
1: so LG announced at CES during their press conference that they were doing um, they were they were collaborating with Netflix. And the idea behind that was that they wanted to start releasing um, HDR um, footage you know uh, shows in HDR so high dynamic range uh, for those who, who, who don't know what the, the three letters mean um, but high dynamic range has been around for ages in photography obviously it it, the, it done well it can give you a lot of detail in both dark and light areas done badly it looks like a joke picture um, I mean we've all seen HDR shots that have been completely overblown and you know it's an aesthetic thing and some people like doing it um, but done well HDR gives you the opportunity to sort of lift out details in very bright scenes whilst keeping the detail in dark scenes. Now if you think about how your eye looks when you're when you're looking out at a beautiful scenery, you, you know, you're getting loads of detail in the sky. You can see clouds and dark blue, but you're not compromising on what you're able to see in the in the darker areas. You still get loads of detail. And the idea is that t- TV's always been really bad for that. And cameras particularly just don't have that ability, you know, you, you, because of the way they work, you've, you've got to choose a, you know, an exposure. So you've got to either open or close the iris. And you do that based on, you know, where your thing is that you're trying to draw people's attention to. But if um, with digital and stuff like that, and particularly red cameras, I think you're you're able to get a certain, you're able to recover a certain amount of uh, detail either side. Um, and that gives you the opportunity to produce images that are completely different. And it, it's, it's it's quite hard to explain how it will look, um, but it will it, it will be quite subtle. You might not even realize, but the idea is that it, it will give you a picture that has so much more in it. And, you know, there's times where you're sort of squinting to see things that could be much improved by this. Now, it's going to be, that's going to be a technology that I think will come along with 4K, but Netflix say so they're doing it this year. Which I think is really interesting, and LG will say they have a TV to support it this year.
0: Well, what I was going to ask is, with it being picture quality based rather than say image size based, as with 4K or 3D, which is obviously different again. I mean, can HDR be retrofitted? I mean, do you need a new TV? Because oh yes, you do need a new TV. Yeah, that's a problem. I mean, that's
1: obviously a problem. Yeah, because you need something that's able to display and. and with a lot of what goes on with TVs, it's an interesting point, but people don't really realise it. Because, okay. like you said, we're coming to the point where we can't really do any more resolution. Um, you know, we can keep creating more and more densely packed sensors that are able to produce really high resolution footage, but there is going to be a point where we're just not going to be able to see that as a in, in terms of it's just not going to be worthwhile. So TVs will get to a certain size, and they physically won't be able to get any larger. You know, we although we're happy to take a big TV. You know, you, when you get to a hundred inches. There's not many lounges that can really go bigger than a hundred inches of a TV, um, yeah. So, so the so what you what you're going to do is you're going to have to try and sort of rethink picture quality and what it means. Um, and and you know HDR gives you the opportunity to do that. It will give you something, and it will require new hardware. But it also we're not using the current TVs like LCDs and OLEDs have have a huge amount of ability to create color and brightness that we don't use in the broadcast spectrum it's cuz broadcasting has been around a long time and it hasn't changed a huge amount and there's a lot of extra quality to be picked out from using different parts of rgb you know increasing the you know all of that kind of stuff so you just get a much more i it would just be a subtly much better picture and it um, it's one of these things you show people them side by side and they'll really get it but it, it's very difficult to explain it conceptually as a you know as, as why anyone would want to go for a new TV to get all these things. And of course, it, it won't work like that. People will just upgrade as time goes by. But I would say, like you said, resolution is not going to keep getting higher. I mean, it, it, you know, it probably will because the technology is there. But I think it will be it will be something that. People, it won't get pushed as much. It'll be ultimately uh, not 8K, not 16K, you know. And obviously, as as compression gets better and, you know, we're already seeing huge gains in compression, aren't we, that will allow us to do 4K, um, we'll get there eventually. But it just it won't be a huge deal.
0: Yeah. I, I mean, for anyone who's listening who hasn't seen HDR, the best example is to probably go to... Um, Google Images and have a look at an HDR photo, and you'll get a general idea for what HDR can look like. Usually, they're overblown a little bit more than I imagine we'd see in cinema, just because they're used for single pictures. And some video cameras, some phones, like the Galaxy S5, for example, will shoot video in HDR. So if you search YouTube, I think probably for Samsung S5 HDR video, you'll probably find a bunch of clips recorded in HDR. But the problem there is that of course you're seeing the difference on your screen but you haven't had to update your screen to see the difference between HDR and standard and so I do I do have this giant bit of skepticism that even if it is hardware required or hardware mandated that you need a new set to view HDR content I do wonder whether or not that is purely to sell you a new TV, or whether actually your current set is perfectly capable of displaying HDR. It's just that it's easier to sell you a new one if you say it can't. Well, that was always like the
1: the three D thing. You know, there was no there was no technological advance that came with three D particularly, apart from the ability to send you know to, to trigger glasses in sympathy with the, what the screen was doing. That you know the 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 thing that made three D possible was the the fact that we had. TVs that could routinely do 60 frames a second and half would be left eye and half would be right eye because most stuff is 24 or 30 frames a second. So, you know, there there was no big technological leap forward that gave us 3D. It was just the ability to sync with glasses and that wasn't a huge deal. Um, So we were all, you know, anyone that bought an expensive 3D TV when they came out was really, well, they saw you coming and they almost immediately sold ice to some Eskimos (laughs)
0: <laughs> like the um like the uh the remastering of Titanic in 3D retrofitted to your screen it has sunk what what we I think we have adequately um given to everyone listening in the United Kingdom is that this is the year that 4K becomes more accessible and maybe it's not the worst time to buy that television set which uh are getting at least a little bit more affordable I think this is smashing news in once again we have destroyed one of earth's most complex <laughs> conundrums on behalf of podcast fans everywhere i think it's amazing team we
1: make they're probably going to write this in a history book or something aren't they well i'm writing it so yes oh uh, yeah good idea well that, that's the one way to control history isn't it to uh, write it it's
0: written by the victors and the arrogant ah. i've heard um, which one are we nate well we're both victorious <laughs> we so i think uh, i think we can probably do with writing our own intro Ian Morris can be found on Twitter at Ian Morris78. I am on at Nate Langson and your feedback is more than encouraged. Langson at iCloud.com about your view on this week's show, what you've liked, what you haven't liked, and of course if you go to natelangsen.com forward slash podcast, you can find the show notes. To this episode, and, as, and of course, links to all these stories we discussed about on various publications in the top of the pod section. Until next week, this has been Text Message. I have been and will continue to be Nate Langson. Thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip?